turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We are continuing in our series called Summer Stories. And we started last week where we're going through various um, parables this summer. And you can guess which parable we're going to be covering today. Luke chapter 16. Now last week, if you were with us, you may remember we talked about uh, the parable where the, kind of the big point uh, what, that Jesus was making was to ask, seek, and knock. And we talked about how that meant to keep going to God in confidence and in faith, knowing that he can and will answer when we pray. And so hopefully, uh, as you've been praying this week, you've been thinking about that, maybe going to God with those same requests over and over. But again, we were commanded to do that, and so that is why we do that. Now today, we're going to be looking at a parable that Jesus told about two individuals, and uh, really the idea, the whole idea is about eternity. And so I've entitled the message this morning, Prepare for Eternity. Prepare for eternity. And before I get into any of that, I want to take time to read the passage. So Luke chapter 16, we're going to begin in verse 19 and read through the end of the chapter. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. Jesus is teaching. He says, There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house, because I have five brothers, to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Father, as we look to another parable of Jesus today, and consider every single one of our hearts and our positions with you, Lord, I pray that every one of us would learn how and be prepared for eternity. Lord, as we think about our own eternal destinies today, I pray that every single one of us would walk out of here knowing that we would spend eternity with you. Lord, for someone here today who maybe is uncertain or knows they wouldn't or 
If they're watching online, listening by radio, I pray today through your spirit you will move in their hearts. Lord, for that person here today who may be confident that they would go to heaven, but their confidence is in the wrong thing, I pray that they, they would know that today and see that through your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was thinking this week about this passage and being prepared for eternity, we all know that in life there are a lot of things that we have to make preparations for. Uh, my birthday's coming up next month, and I'll be 36, and one thing about inching closer to 40 is that you begin hearing a lot more talk about retirement and life insurance and things like that, uh, and how important they are to be prepared uh, while you still have a chance, right? And so as I've been thinking more and more about those things, and because I've been hearing more and more about them, it reminds me, again, there are certain things in life that we have to be prepared for, because if we don't prepare now, one day, when we wish we had prepared, it's going to be too late. And as important as it is to be prepared for life's surprises, or even those things that we know are inevitable, it's even more important to be prepared spiritually. Because the reality is, as we think about our lives, there is not a single one of us who know when or how we're going to leave this earth. There's not any of us who know those things. Yet, there is one thing that all of us know for certain. That unless Jesus returns first, every single one of us is going to die. We all know that. We're all going to pass from this earth. And not only that, the Bible tells us that every single one of us, when we die, have an eternal destination. And that eternal destination is either one of two places, either heaven or hell. Now, the parable here that we're looking at today, you'll notice, doesn't speak a whole lot about heaven. In fact, uh, as I've mentioned before, there, uh, as we look at Jesus' teaching, there were many times that Jesus taught more about hell than he did about heaven. And so as we look to this, he gives us a descriptor of hell in this parable. Now let me remind you what a parable is. A parable is a story that Jesus told and he used as an illustration to teach his followers and his hearers about something about the kingdom of God, something about uh, the spiritual realm that may be difficult for us to understand otherwise. And this parable is very interesting because it's really the only parable where Jesus gives any kind of name to any character in the story. Now, as we look to this particular story, we'll notice two individuals, one being the rich man, one being this poor man named Lazarus. But particularly, I want you to notice the rich man's eternal destiny. How Jesus describes hell. Look at verse 23 and verse 24. Jesus says, And being in torment in Hades, another word for hell, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Now at this time, that is a way to describe heaven. Many Jews uh, had this picture in mind, being with, with Abraham and being at his side. And so he was describing it in this way. But look at what he says in verse 24 to go on to describe what hell was like. He describes this man as saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Now, I don't know about you, but 
I don't think I have ever been so thirsty or so hot or so in need of a drink that a mere drop of water could do anything for me. But apparently this man in this story, Jesus was, was showing us that he was in such torment that one drop of water would have helped him in his misery. And as we look to the Bible, over and over, Jesus warned about hell. And the rich man's desire here in this story was to be saved from eternal torment and hell. Now the Bible says, similarly to this rich man, that because we all have sinned, we have all fallen short, that if we die in our sins, the Bible is clear that we will spend eternity in hell. Now, when you turn on the TV and listen to preachers, you oftentimes won't even hear that word mentioned. But the fact is, the Bible is clear that hell is real, it's a place of torment, and it is a place that we are all destined for unless we are saved. And so as you think about that this morning, I want to ask the question, what does it take to be saved? What does it take to be saved, and what is it that matters uh, like when you stand before God one day and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? If he were to ask that question, what is it that would matter in the end? Now, for every single one of us, we would all have some sort of answer in mind. And chances are, let me just tell you, chances are, if you've been to church more than, let's say, six months, a year, two years, whatever, you probably even know what the right answer is. But I want to ask you today. Have you really trusted? Do you really have faith in the right place, in the right person? And I want to show you from this parable several places that I think many people who would describe themselves as good people, maybe even church-going people, several places that those kind of people may be putting their hope and faith and trust in even if they know what the right answer is. And we're going to look to this parable and see these things today. I want you to look back at verse 19. And look again at how Jesus describes the first man that he uses as a character in this story. He says, There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. Now the first detail Jesus gives us about this individual, the first character he mentions in this story is that this guy was rich. Now it doesn't tell us how rich he was. It doesn't tell us, you know, what his net worth was or how much he had in his bank account or anything like that. But Jesus, by giving some of these details of what he would wear, how he would eat, all of these things, is he was telling us this man is extremely wealthy. And one of those ways that he tells us that is by what he was wearing. He was wearing fine linen, but not only that, it says he was wearing purple. Now for us, that's no big deal, right? We can go to the store today and buy a purple shirt, purple dress, whatever, and, and it's no big deal. But at that point in time, the only way you could have purple is if you were rich, because purple dyes at that point in time uh, were only brought forth by extracting that from a sea creature. Now, you can imagine uh, how much work and, and, um, and responsibility that took to be able to, to catch those and actually extract that and then apply the dyes to the clothing and all that. That's why only rich people could afford to wear it. And so this man was dressed in purple and fine linens, and not only that, he was feasting lavishly every day. I mean, the best kind of foods 
that you could buy. This was what this man, uh, this was how he lived. Now, if you think about, uh, you know, this man, picture him in your head, whatever comes to your mind. This was a guy who was always dressed to the nines, always had everything he wanted. And what Jesus, the picture he's drawing us to in our minds is someone who all we had to look at, all we had to do was look at them, and we knew he was rich. Man, he, he had everything that you could want in this life. And when you think about how our culture and society is today, this is the life that many people aspire for. Man, if I could just make a little bit more money than I do now, or if I could just have this car or this house or live in this place, and man, we're all aspiring to these things because in our lives, like, you know, these things really matter to us. But one of the things that we can learn from this parable, and one of the things we have to realize is that money, all of the things we can accumulate in this earth, none of that matters when it comes to the end. This man learned this at the end of his life in this story. So I want to tell you this morning clearly that one of the things that cannot save you that we look from this parable to find is that riches cannot save you. Riches cannot save you. Now, the rich man in this story learned when it's all said and done that none of that matters. Now, as we read this and and think about this principle, I think most of us would would say, well, why would I think riches would save me? You know, why why would anybody think they could stand before God and just give them some money or something and that would let them into heaven? That's not really what the principle is about. That's not really why we should know these things. Why we should know this is because Jesus over and over warned of the dangers that money can do uh, when it comes to our relationships with God. Now, let me say clearly, I don't think money is a bad thing. I think that money should be used wisely. We should be good stewards of, of our money, and we should give toward the work of the Lord. But Jesus warned of money, like in Mark chapter 10, verse 25. This is what he said. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Let me read that again. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, most of us would read that and automatically think, well, that's not me. I'm not rich. Because we can always think of somebody who has more than we do, right? And we think, well, that person's rich. But when you think about it, like for all of us, living in the United States, we are all blessed in so many ways. And many people would look to every single one of us in here and say, that person's rich. Now, we look to this caution that Jesus says, And he says it's very difficult for a rich person to get to heaven. Why would he say that? Well, it's because when we have money, we tend to become dependent upon ourselves. We tend to look to ourselves to say, you know, if I need anything, if I need food, I can go buy it. If I need clothes, I can go buy it. If I need uh, repairs on my house or a bigger house, I can pay for that. If my car breaks down, I can go get it fixed. I've got insurance to take care of this, that, and the other. And we become self-supporting in a lot of ways. And instead, our minds, our hearts should be looking to God for our total dependence. And when our hearts and minds get fixated on ourselves, 
we are in danger of believing and thinking that for some reason, some way, that riches can save us because we are self-supported and we have no need for God. As you think about this, in contrast, there was another man who was mentioned in this story. Look at verse 20. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. Man, you look at all of the things that he went through, as Jesus described. Poor guy, didn't have anything, and so much so, he was so poor that he just wanted to eat what fell off of the rich man's table. He's like, man, if I could just have some of those crumbs. Not only that, he was covered in sores, and so there wasn't really anybody in that culture and society who wanted to be around this man. He was an outcast. But in the end, Jesus shows that while he had nothing here on earth, when it was all over, when his life here on earth was over, he got it all. And this man is the picture of the one who knew what it took to get to heaven. Now again, Jesus focuses more on the rich man in this story, and we're going to see why even more in just a second. But here, Jesus is saying, when it's all said and done, it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, it doesn't matter what you have in this life, you can't take any of that with you, none of that can save you. We have to learn to be dependent on something else besides our riches. Now there's another aspect of this I want us to think about. As you look at uh, verse 19 again, and I just keep coming back to this idea that Jesus presented of this man being rich and dressing in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. Again, it was very apparent that this guy had a lot of money. But notice what wasn't mentioned. It it was not only not mentioned uh, how much money he had, but it wasn't mentioned how he made this money. And not only that, Uh, It wasn't like that Jesus said that this was an evil man who stole from people or took advantage of people or swindled people out of money. It wasn't mentioned that he was a tax collector or anything like that that would portray him in a negative light. He was just a rich man, maybe a man that a lot of people thought a lot of, maybe a man that as you look at his descriptor here, a lot of people would think, man, I wish I was that guy. God must really be blessing him. He was a rich man and he had it all. And it seems like he probably did it in a, in a right way, in an honest way. And people would have taken note. Have you ever been somewhere where maybe like you noticed how somebody was dressed or noticed what they were driving and you just like thought, man, I wonder who that person is. I wonder, you know, what they do for a living or if they're important. Uh, One of the times that I thought this, uh, actually a couple of times at the same place, was I've been to the Corvette Museum a few times. And every time I go into the Corvette Museum, if you've been there, they always have these Corvettes that people have ordered uh, in this big showroom area that are just waiting to be picked up. And oftentimes, you know, these will be uh, Corvettes that have been customized. They're not just like sitting on the lot somewhere. These have been customized for these individuals with, you know, the paint and all the details and things that they want. And then sitting with the Corvette is oftentimes a nameplate that says who it belongs to. And as you go through and look at those Corvettes and notice those nameplates, for me, I can't help but think, man, who is this person? 
you know, and they're driving all across the country a lot of times to pick up their car and drive it back. And I, I think, man, they must be somebody important, somebody wealthy, somebody notable, have a, a huge reputation, maybe a celebrity of some sort. I don't, you know, I always wonder about these kind of things. Well, in this situation, this was often what was the case in Jesus' day as well. If somebody was rich, man, they had a reputation that preceded them a lot of times, especially if they did it in an honest way. But yet, notice what Jesus does here. Now, as we look to verse 20, he tells us a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. But notice in verse 19 what is not included about the rich man. What's the rich man's name? Doesn't tell us, does it? Now, later on in Latin texts like the Vulgate and other uh, later um, translations, they added in a name for this man. But the earliest manuscripts have no name for this man. And so what Jesus is showing here is that in the kingdom of God, your reputation, who you, if you're a notable person in this world, it doesn't automatically make you a notable person in the kingdom of God. This man who was an outcast to society, he was not known by anybody else in his life, here at the end, was known by God. Verse 20 tells us a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores was lying at his gate. And what's interesting is that word lying, uh, if you look at the Greek, it's not like he's just, it doesn't just mean he went there to lay down. That word in the Greek actually means like to cast aside. So from his culture, he, it was almost like he was forced to do this. He had no other option because his culture had disregarded him. But yet, the Lord knew who he was. The Lord knew his name while the rich man here was never to be named. And this should communicate very clearly, very strongly to us that reputation cannot save you. Reputation cannot save you. Eternity is not decided based on your reputation here in this world or based on who you know here in this world. Let me tell you, many people are hoping to get to heaven because their spouse or their parents are somebody important or maybe good people or even Christians. There are a lot of people who are hoping their reputation and, and you know, being maybe well-known in their community or whatever is something that will help them when it's all said and done. But if you are depending on anything to do with your reputation, whether it's your family name, your status in your community, your, um, your job, your title that you have, your popularity, any of that, it cannot save you. It does not matter any of that when it comes to salvation and standing before the Lord. This man had it all. But there's another aspect of this rich man's life that I don't want us to miss. Look at 24, 27, and 30. As he's crying out, look at what he says in verse 24. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this flame. So he cries out to Father Abraham, 
Now again in verse 27, look at what he says as he's addressing Abraham. He's saying, Father. Again in verse 30, no, Father Abraham. He's calling Abraham his father. And as Jesus was speaking this to a group that was around a group of Jews, they would have noted this very clearly. Because for a Jewish person, they would all look to Abraham as their father. Now, when you speak of a Jewish person uh, in biblical days, you not only were speaking of a religion, you were speaking of a race. And so in one sense, they were Jews because they were born Jews. But in another sense, they were Jews because they were religious. And here, as he's calling out to Father Abraham, it's showing us in some way that Jesus is identifying this man as having some sort of religious heritage doesn't tell us how religious he was, but for whatever reason, he was religious enough to call Abraham Father Abraham. But I want you to notice again, even though this man was religious, even though he had religious family connection, in the end, religion cannot save you. Now let me say that again as we're sitting here in church today. Religion cannot save you. Many people today are hoping to get to heaven because maybe their spouse or their parents are religious. Many are hoping to get to heaven because they do religious things. Go to church. Give money. Help the poor. Maybe even know the right answers. And like I said, you can know if, if somebody says, what does it take to get to heaven? You can know what the answer is and still not have the answer. There are many people to, and you might be saying, well, preacher, how, how do you know this? Like, are there really that many people who are Christians who think like you can be religious or just do good stuff to get to heaven? 2020, the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, as part of the study they did, found that 52% of those people who said that they were Christian said that they depended on their good works in some way to get them to heaven. Let me say that again. 52% of people who said they were Christians in this study in 2020 said that in some way they were depending upon their good works to get them to heaven. These things cannot save you none of these things Romans 3 20 says this for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law we can't do enough good to be justified nobody can and as I think about uh, this in in our perspective in our reality here I mean there are there have been times throughout my ministry that I've seen people realize, man, I was depending upon my religion. I was depending upon my good works to save me, and I don't need to do that anymore. Some of you may remember just a few years ago, we had a, a woman who was attending our church at that time and, and uh, went through our prospective members class, and as part of that class, uh, we share our testimonies of what God has done in our lives and how we've been saved and all of those kind of things. And as she sat and listened to those, it came around uh, to her to share her testimony And what she said was, I'm a member of a Southern Baptist church. I got baptized at a Southern Baptist church. 
But after sitting here today and hearing your stories of what it means to actually be a Christian, I know I'm not saved. She was a church member. She had been baptized in the Southern Baptist Church, yet she realized that day that she did not have what it took to be a Christian. She had been depending and hoping in the wrong things, and you need to make sure your hope for your salvation is in the right place because none of these things can save you. Now, let me be clear this morning. There's nothing wrong with having money. Solomon, we looked at in the Bible, was blessed by God and wealthiest man that ever lived. There's nothing wrong with having a good reputation. In fact, the Bible encourages having a good reputation. We want to live in a way that honors God and has a a good reputation in front of people. There's nothing wrong with being religious. We should be devoted and dedicated to the things of the Lord. There's nothing wrong with any of that. The problem is when you depend upon anything of any of these things or anything like these things to save you. That's the problem. None of these things can save you. So here's the question today. What can save? What is it that saves us? Look at verse 29. As Abraham in this parable responded. Remember, Jesus is using this as an illustration, but here's what he says. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. Now, what is Jesus saying here? What is Moses and the prophets? Now, many of us know those are individuals who lived in the Old Testament time, right? And you think about Moses and the prophets, they were, at this point in time, they were dead. Moses and the prophets were dead at this point in time. So what was Jesus talking about? Moses and the prophets was a way that Jewish people at this point in time referred to what we call the Old Testament. And so Jesus is saying they have the scriptures. They should pay attention to the scriptures. They should see what God's word says. This is how we come to know what salvation is. They should Check out the scriptures. And then there's another word that's mentioned here in verse 30 by the rich man. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will what? What does it say? Repent. They will repent. And you see, this starts the line of thinking of what it actually means to become a Christian. What it actually takes to be saved. The Bible makes it clear over and over that we must repent. What does that mean? Well, I've talked about this before. It's a change of mind that God brings about in our hearts. He changes our minds, renews our minds, makes our minds to be like his. And as as our minds are changed and our hearts are changed, we've repented and we're turning away from sin. That's what repenting means. That's why Jesus, when he tells people things like, hey, go, your faith has saved you, and he says, go and sin no more. That's a repentance. We're changing from that. We're turning from that. But not only that, look at what else, or think about what else the Bible says. I want you to actually turn with me to Acts 16. Keep your finger, uh, you can keep your finger in Luke 16 if you want. But go to Acts 16 just for a moment. You may remember the story of Paul and Silas in prison and the doors opened up because God did a miracle and everybody was escaping and the jailer was uh, about ready to harm himself because he knew that he was going to be in so much trouble. And in Acts 16, verse 30 and 31, here's what he says. 
he escorted them out, talking about Paul and Silas. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now that question is what we're asking this morning. What must we do to be saved? What does it take to be saved? We know that all of these other things don't save us, so what is it? Look at what, he, what they say. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. So as we think about what the parable tells us, it says look to God's word. What does God's word tell us that it takes to be saved? It tells us that riches, reputation, religion, those things cannot save but only repentance and faith in Jesus can save you. Only repentance and faith in Jesus can save you. Again, I'll repeat what I said in the beginning. Every single one of us have sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God, and the Bible is clear that the wages of sin is death, and that death is not only passing from this life, but separation from God's goodness, his glory, all of those things, separation from him in hell. And the Bible says that hell was never created for us. But because of our sin, because of our, what we've done, we've deserved this punishment. But the good news is what Jesus did for us. That Jesus came fully God, fully man, born of a virgin came into this world and lived 33 years among us, dwelt among us. The end of his time here on earth, he died a criminal's death on the cross, not because he sinned. He never sinned. But he paid the punishment for you and for me. And on the third day, he came back to life. And the Bible says the only way that you can be saved is by repenting and turning to Jesus in faith, believing on him. Now, I want to ask you this morning, as you're considering your life, as you're considering your preparation for eternity, what is your hope in? Now, I'm not asking you what's the right answer. I'm asking you, what is your hope in? Is your hope in something like riches or your reputation or religion or something else? Fill in the blank with anything else you want. Is your hope in anything else but Jesus? Now, again, I'm not asking you what the right answer is. I'm asking you, what is your hope in? Are you truly saved? Because, again, none of us know when or how we're going to die. But the fact is, we all will stand before God one day. If you're not saved, today is the day of salvation. Repent in your heart. Turn to Jesus in faith. If you'd like to come and talk to me, I'll be down front. You can come pray. I can talk to you after service. But listen, don't leave here without knowing that you know Jesus. Have you been baptized? Maybe some of you today have said, I want to follow Jesus, but you've never actually done the first step of following Jesus, and that is baptism. Have you been baptized? If not, I would love to talk to you more this morning about actually taking that first step of following him. Come and, be and talk about being baptized this morning. But listen, I know that as we're gathered here, obviously a church is a gathered body of believers. So my automatic thought is most of us have made this decision already. But probably for some of you, there are times in your life when doubts have started to 
come into your life and you've doubted your salvation. And what happens when that goes on in our lives is we begin to look to other things like our good works and other things and say, well, is, you know, is it dependent on those things or not? I want you to remember what Ephesians 1, 7 tells us. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In him is how we have redemption. Through his blood is how we have this grace. So what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you that salvation can be found. Lord, as we think about our own lives and preparing for eternity, we know that there are many who are depending upon themselves or something else other than Christ to save. Lord, I pray for someone here today who maybe has been dependent upon something else for years. And today is their day of salvation. Lord, I know that it may hurt our pride a little bit. It may humble us to admit that we have been mistaken for years or had our hope in another place. But Lord, help us to not be too prideful. Humble us to the point that we can make the decision that we need to make. Lord, I pray for that person who needs to be saved. I pray for that person who needs to be baptized or, or think more about a decision that, they, that you've been calling them to do that they've been hesitant to do. Lord, I pray that through your spirit you will move in their hearts today. For all of us who have made this decision recently or years ago to place our faith in Jesus, Lord, help us in times of doubt and uncertainty or questioning, help us to remember that our faith is not built upon ourselves or anything else, but in Jesus, and he never fails. Lord, be with our time of commitment. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.